Hello, it's Thursday, May 25th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me today in studio, well, it's the answer to the question, is there a doctor in the house? The answer is yes. It's Scott Atlas, MD. He's the David and Joan Traitel Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution and a member of the Hoover's Working Group on Healthcare Policy. Among the books he's authored, 2015's Restoring Quality Healthcare, 2009's Reforming America's Healthcare System, The Flawed Vision of Obamacare. If you haven't guessed already, that's today's topic, Obamacare. Repeal, replace, realistically, when and how does the Trump presidency make this happen? Scott, great to see you. Great to be here. You are back from Washington, D.C. Yes, I am. That lovely town back east where yesterday a storm erupted, and the storm was the Congressional Budget Office, quote-unquote, scoring the bill that passed out of the House, the Obamacare repeal bill. It might help to start this conversation about where we go with Obamacare to talk about what exactly a CBO score is, what they did when they looked at the Obamacare bill, and why. Is it realistic what they talked about in terms of 23 million people losing health care, uh, $119 billion in savings instead of $159 billion and so forth? So your take on the CBO score. Yeah, well, of course, as you've identified, the CBO score uh, is a uh, big topic now. And it's used as evidence that uh, for political reasons, of course, that Oh, the the replacement bill is is a disaster, and uh, we have to think of something totally different, uh, et cetera. You know, the reality is you have to look at what the CBO scoring is, and what it is generally is a projection. And in this specific case, having read the entire document, it's a projection based upon not only uh, comparisons of current law to those projected by the new uh, proposal, but it it actually contains quite a few political predictions or politically based projections, I should say, about behavior of people in various states and various income groups uh, based upon even further, based upon hypothetical projections. So it's compounded prediction after prediction after prediction. And CBO ran into trouble with this when they scored the Obamacare bill, didn't they? Because some of their estimates on how large a population would move into a certain plan, in some cases, they were wildly off. Well, I'll give you a couple of examples, and this is something that I think your listeners really should keep in mind about accuracy of CBO projections. In the uh, Affordable Care Act projections, uh, for instance, in the beginning, they predicted that one million people would lose their employer-sponsored health insurance. And uh, two or three years later, they, they showed that uh, they were off by a factor of 10. I mean, tenfold. 10 million people lost their employer-sponsored health insurance, according to their own projections. Uh, another one uh, that's very useful uh, to look at is the number they were off by... Uh, almost threefold, almost by a factor of three of how many people would get private insurance under the exchanges. And uh, and, in other words, they overestimated it by almost a factor of three. And I think you have to uh, take their projections with a massive grain of salt, not because there's an intent to distort. I'm not assigning motive, but I think you have to realize that, A, they're wrong Uh, very, very frequently, B, they're wrong with a huge order of magnitude off. And uh, more disturbing than being wrong is that when you look at 
what direction they're wrong at. It seems to me there is a non-random pattern there. And that pattern is that the projections are wrong in the direction of the favorable impact of big government programs like the Affordable Care Act. And this is a consistent pattern, and that is disturbing. So although I, I wouldn't go so far as to say there's an overt agenda by the projection, I think you, you really have to be aware of the history and, and how these project. Right. There has to be some accountability to the projections. Right. Now, all of that said, the Republican-controlled Senate is dealing today with the reality of the headline, 23 million people will lose their coverage under the House repeal plan. A terrible headline. And that can't help the mood in the chamber because the chamber is trying to scramble, trying to figure out what to do here. So you've been back there. You've talked to the senators. Who's going to lead on this, Scott? I see Mitch McConnell very publicly telling people he doesn't have 50 votes right now. Uh, the surest sign that up is down and down and up. Ted Cruz, that master of compromise, Ted Cruz is offering himself up as the, as the man who's going to skipper this. But who in the Senate, Scott, is going to lead this dance? Well, I think there's a group of senators, and you can hear them quoted in the, in the news, uh, many of whom, or at least some of whom, are actually MDs. Um, not that that gives anyone a, a necessarily any knowledge about policy in healthcare, but it does give people some credibility on healthcare right. and how it's delivered. I, 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 before I, I go down that road, I do want to say some a couple of specific things about the CBO scoring of the House bill that are very important to see. It's not just that they've been wrong in the past. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a good example of the distortion, really, that, that is in this projection, this new projection. They made a claim in this document that the current law for Medicaid expansion includes not only the states that did the Medicaid expansion, but they went further and said that there are, of the 19 states that did not do the Medicaid expansion under Affordable Care Act, they're all going to do it. They assume they're all going to do it, and they're all going to not only do it, but 80%, a full 80% of the maximum possible people eligible for the expanded Medicaid program will be enrolled. And so they added these millions of people into their so-called current law status quo. And then uh, they compare how many would have Medicaid under the new law. And so they falsely really stated the current situation and then compared it to this exaggerated current situation. I think this is, yeah. you know, it's very misleading, extremely misleading and clearly going to be inaccurate. The, right. the second big, big thing they did was they, the CBO said that, well, uh, the, they, they failed to take into account the provisions of the law that will lead to reduced health care costs because as we know, the cost of health insurance is dictated by generally two categories of factors. Health insurance is a reflection of the cost of health care and the regulatory environment of the health insurance. And what, what unfortunately is what I view as a major disconnect between what the politicians view as appropriate path for health care reform mm -hmm. and what should be done is that politicians, both on the Democrat and the Republican side, are focusing on reducing the cost of health insurance, making health insurance more affordable. And the way they do that is they, one of the main ways is they give a, a, a financial assist to buying the health insurance. And 
by either Obamacare subsidies or in this uh, Republican uh, model by refundable tax credits, which is basically money. And, you know, the, the problem with that is that that doesn't get at the root problem. The root problem is the regulatory environment of the health insurance and mainly the cost of health care. And so they are artificially propping up the costs that are reflected by health insurance by just simply supplementing the money to buy the health insurance. It's a very misguided pathway to health reform. I'm going to read you a quote by a Republican congressman after the report came out. He said, quote, I respect the CBO's role, but just because a group of auditors down the block has created a model of ifs and maybes, that doesn't make it a gospel. Absolutely. And I think that the document is really grossly misleading. And most importantly, it, it fails to take into account what will happen when, by virtue of some of these changes, like expansion of health savings accounts uh, and more flexibility in health insurance so that you can buy or have available to purchase uh, higher deductibles with large health savings accounts, and therefore being paid, paying directly for health care, mm-hmm. that we know by the data reduces the cost of health care. Right. And when you reduce the cost of health care, you make then health insurance even cheaper. And so you actually will raise the number of people that will be able to buy health insurance and access health care if you let some of the impact of the new law occur. And what the CBO did, if you read the document, they really minimized this impact. And they basically kind of almost glibly said, quote, a few million people uh, will will come into the uh, health insurance pool, even though we know that the big reason why the health insurance premiums are skyrocketing under Obamacare is this so-called death spiral of insurance where younger, healthier people see that the Obamacare system has created health insurance that's not a good value for them to buy. It's too expensive, and so you end up having health insurance only for people who are super sick. Mm -hmm. And what this law and the Republican proposals generally try to do is to bring health insurance back into being a reasonable value for younger, healthier people, which is what we need to keep the system functioning. Right and therefore re- reducing and being able to leverage the impact of some of these, these, uh, these changes. Okay, I want you to fill in this blank for me. The Senate is going to take the House bill, and the Senate is going to blank the House bill. Your choices. Okay, Scott, I have your, to keep it clean. Yes, <laughs> it's a family podcast. <laughs> your choices are fine-tune, fiddle, tinker, rewrite, gut. Yeah, I I would uh, say somewhere between rewrite and gut. And I say that for two reasons. One, uh, for pre-CBO publication policy reasons, where I always thought and had the impression after visiting the Hill a couple of times, I I had the impression that they were going to start over. Mm -hmm. Um, Now I, I think it's really a political hot potato, and they, I think, I'm not a political expert, but I think they're going to distance themselves from, as much as possible, from the bill that was scored the way it was by CBO. So I'm more convinced that the Senate is going to come up with something very different, although in principles, uh, there will be certainly some commonality. So it raises an interesting question, Scott, is the House, you've looked at the House bill. Yes. 
is the House bill really that poorly drafted, or is the House bill just have that toxic of a reputation at this point? Because it, it interests me, Scott, because the senators, the Republican senators, the ones who were up in 2018, most of them are pretty safe in their, in their states. Most of them are from pretty strong red states. They don't face the same pressures over in the House where they're looking at the possibility of losing the chamber. They're probably safe for the next cycle. So it seems to me that I'm just curious, is the House really the bill that bad, or is just is, is the reputation of it that bad? No, I, I don't think the House bill is that bad uh, at all. It's just that the reaction to the House bill is is right. is uh, sort of uh, not just bad, but it, it's uh, it's it's very easy to make it seem catastrophic, and that's what people like uh, the opposition, led by Chuck Schumer, I would say. Uh, it seems to be doing already in the media. Right. Um, but I don't think the House bill is bad. In fact, people have asked me, what grade would I give the House bill? And my answer is, uh, well, A, I, just, to, just to start off, I'm not going to let perfect be the enemy of good. So mm -hmm. I would give the House bill, if it's graded on a curve and Obamacare is in the class, I'm going to give it an A+. Plus. Right. If it's graded on an absolute grade, I'll give it a B. And, and the reason I give it a B is fundamentally some of the disagreements I have in, in the, uh, with, the, with certain components of it, as well as that I don't think it went far enough uh, to, to reform the system the way it needs to be reformed. But I think in general, it's not a bad bill. Uh, the, the issue, though, isn't that it's, it's not a bad bill. The issue here, uh, to me, is that politics are going to, are so vicious right now and it's easy to scare people about health care. It's very easy. And, and some of the claims are just simply absolutely lies that are made. But this is what uh, is covered by the media and, in fact, uh, furthered by the media coverage. Well, Scott, you've created a gigantic government program. And if we could go back to the history, all the way back to the 1930s, tell me how many gigantic government programs since the 1930s have been either fundamentally rewritten or eliminated. Yeah, absolutely. Welfare comes to mind, and that's about it. Right. And, and in fact, this is, you know, one of the models to me for how m at least the Medicaid part of the healthcare system should be reformed. I, I've said the model really is like welfare uh, being a bridge to a job uh, in the 90s. Uh, that's exactly how Medicaid should be, where you take this model of helping poor people and assist them to get into the same healthcare system that we have, that people who uh, are able to access the superior, uh, world-leading healthcare quality of the U.S. healthcare system, instead of perpetuating this substandard system, uh, what I would call a second-class healthcare system in parallel, which is Medicaid right now as we know it, which frankly is sort of unconscionable to me uh, to celebrate a massive expansion of something that is clearly proven to have bad outcomes in health. In fact, worse outcomes, not just than private insurance, but in some cases, worse outcomes than no insurance at all. And secondly, uh, to be a system where more than half of doctors don't accept new Medicaid patients. So somehow the Democrats celebrate this expansion of Medicaid, but all it is for many people is simply labeling them as insured and not doing anything about the delivery or access to health care. I'm about to ask you something very cruel, but I'm going to ask you a question I'd like you to answer in a couple of minutes. It probably would take several thousand words to write. But the question is this, Scott. Let's make you, for the sake of argument, the 101st senator 
Let's make you Mr. Jefferson and let's put you in the chamber and give you quill and a piece of paper and let's have you write the bill. So tell me what you keep in the House bill, what you take out of the House bill, and what you add to the House bill. And again, I know it's a cruel question because there's a lot to be talked about here, but let's just, in very quick strokes, let's just talk about what, what they keep, what they add, what they subtract. Sure. Uh, and I'm, I'm, my, my bent, just to preface the remarks, uh, is that I want to do the best policy. Right. And so you, uh, that's a separate issue from uh, politics because, as we know, politicians have a different incentive. Right. Their but incentive is to get votes. You're, say, you're saying the goal here is to I'm fix saying, the system but also make sure we don't come have to revisit the system in two to three years. Right. I'm right. saying, yes, do the right, do the right policy. And so my, my policy, uh, my bill would include the following. First of all, I, I would use the general mode of we want to make private insurance the fundamental basis of the system, okay? And the reason I, I started to allude to is that government insurance does not give you the access to care that we want. It's private insurance that gives you the access and the outcomes to the, mm -hmm. and partly because that's the best doctors, the best hospitals, et cetera. And the way to do that, you have to uh, go at the, uh, so it, indirectly, it's the cost of the insurance, but it's really how do you get rid of the things that, that created insurance being so expensive? And number one, we have to repeal as many of the Obamacare taxes as possible that really were passed on to consumers. And uh, the House bill, uh, I think, repeals 14 of the 21 taxes, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. uh, but that those many of those taxes, like a health insurance premium tax, like the the tax on uh, branded drugs. These things are passed directly on to consumers. So these things were, were instituted and, in, uh, and passed on to higher costs, basically, for consumers. The, the other regulations also need to be uh, removed that, that made premiums so much higher, such as the medical loss ratio about basically price fixing on insurance, uh, the mandated coverages that are ballooned now to over not just the state mandates of over 2,200 mandates of coverage, but also the so-called minimum essential benefits of the Affordable Care Act. You know, frankly, we, we knew this was a disaster when we heard Secretary Sebelius sort of make fun of high deductible plans that had less mandated coverages by saying that's not even insurance. Nobody would buy that kind of insurance. Meantime, I'm a doctor. I have that insurance, and that's a better value for me. It's not necessarily the panacea for everyone, but less regulation is critical to allow people to buy insurance that they actually want rather than jack up the price of insurance with regulations and then penalize them for not buying it. Right. So that's key is fundamentally changing uh, the regulatory atmosphere and the requirements of private health insurance. Uh, the, the second part of it uh, really is, has to do with pronounced changes in health savings accounts. Now, again, health savings accounts are, are not a panacea for everyone, but health savings accounts are critical, not just because we want to philosophically, quote, empower people. That's really not the reason. The reason is it's an economic reason. We know that when people use health savings accounts, which are typically uh, in conjunction with higher deductibles, so they, we want people to pay directly for health care. When people pay directly for health care, they care about the value of something they're buying, just like every other good or service. In fact, health care is the only thing we buy, use, uh, without paying for it and have no idea what it costs until after we've used it. And there's a reason for it, and that's because the way the system is currently structured, 
we think someone else is paying. We have very little generally out-of-pocket payment, uh, and it's paid by our insurance, which covers everything under the sun, including things that most people would never buy, things like massage therapy, marriage therapy, acupuncture, chiropractors, in vitro fertilization. There are millions of people that are forced to buy coverage for these things that they would never choose to do. And in fact, these health savings accounts, factually speaking from the data, result in people uh, paying 15 to 20% less for health expenditures than those without health savings accounts. This is critical to getting the price down. And when people are offered health savings accounts, they have opted for these in massive numbers. So the key is liberalize the amount you can put in. And in my view, it should be at least double what they currently are, which would match roughly the total out-of-pocket expenses. And secondly, liberalize their uses. In, in my plan, I would make sure that not only are they uh, inherited when you die, but also uh, to get them into the people who are the big users of healthcare. Right. I would have health savings accounts usable for your elderly parents. Another part about health savings accounts in my plan that's different from the House and what will come out of the Senate is I think health savings accounts should be available to Medicare patients because it's not 1965 when Medicare was started. And in the interim, we realize now that because of increased life expectancy, seniors have to save for decades of health care. And so they, they want and would use health savings accounts, but in addition, Health savings accounts, again, we want to leverage their impact, their power on reducing the cost of health care. And we know that the, the seniors are the biggest users of health care. So I would maximize the uses and the, uh, the uh, universality of health savings accounts. I would change, point number three, the tax uh, reform that's in the health bill, uh, care bill of the House and that will be, I'm sure, in anything that comes out of the Republican side. I'm not for tax credits. I think you can, you can get the same numbers in a balance sheet by using income exclusions and deductions, and I would make deductions the same for everyone, whether you're self-employed or uh, employed in a big company or whatever. That's a fairness issue. But also, you have to realize that tax credits are, are a problem for several reasons. One, you're creating a new entitlement program in the era where we all recognize that entitlements are out of control. Mm-hmm. Two, tax credits are adding more complexity to already what I would say is a monstrously complex tax code. Three, you're empowering the IRS to do more than collect money, but now they're going to dole out money to their favorite economic activities. Right. And, and we also know, point four, that, tax, that entitlement programs like tax credits expand, you sort of alluded to this earlier, they expand massively beyond projections. And one example would be uh, Medicare, when it first came out in 1965 versus what the reality is, adjusting for inflation and everything, they were off by a factor of 40. And that's a pretty massive uh, problem. And, And then lastly, tax credits I'm opposed to because it's just a big government overreach philosophically where you have somebody earning money and the government is saying, I'm going to take that money from you by taxation, and I'm going to hand it to somebody else to do what I want those people to do, as opposed to my plan, which is based on income exclusions and deductions, where the government is saying, okay, you earn that money, hands off. We won't touch it. That's excluded from taxation. I think that's a lot fairer way uh, and a lot more controllable uh, way to change things. 
The other things that have to be changed briefly, as I mentioned, Medicaid should be changed really to a bridge to private insurance. Mm -hmm. And I think to the, as different from what, what's being proposed, I think the states should be held accountable. They should have contingencies on getting that federal money. Before Obamacare, federal tax dollars paid about 57 to 60 percent of Medicaid. Right. With Obamacare expansion, it's 90 percent. If the states are going to get federal tax money, there ought to be uh, some contingency on that. And, and it's, not, it's true that we want them to have the flexibility and the uh, uh, capacity to avoid the regulations, and that's a very good part of the House bill and a very good part of, of the Trump kind of uh, gist of things. But I also think that they should be uh, required to have uh, people in Medicaid be enrolled in private insurance. Uh, to get that money. And I, I think part of that federal support should go directly into health savings accounts for people on Medicaid. Last uh, point number five would be that Medicare should be reformed. The, the current Republican administration ran on a promise of right. not touching Medicare. And my take from talking to people on the Hill is they're not going to touch Medicare. I think that's a real shame. The president doesn't want to. I, the president doesn't want to, but I think it's not just that, I think they also view it as politically it's a real. too much of a, it's an untouchable. And I think that's a shame because Medicare is going broke. More and more doctors are refusing new Medicare patients. And right. to put your head in the sand and deny that is really a huge error. And then the, the last point, I think that it, that is uh, going to be part of anything that comes out of the Trump administration era with healthcare will be there will be a, an encouragement, incentive, for more investment into healthcare technology, healthcare innovation. There will be removal of the Obamacare punitive taxes on early investment and, and that, that kind of that is a totally destructive thing for Americans where we clearly, by every metric, our system is the center for innovation in healthcare. You kept that under 10 points. That's great. I thought I'd ask the equivalent of the DJ playing In Agata DeVita, where it's just 15 minutes later. <laughs> the song is over. But no, I think that was great. That was concise. Uh, in a better world, that would all happen. Uh, but this is Washington. So I put you on the spot. I've asked you Dr. Atlas and sort of terminology for an oncologist if Obamacare repeal is treatable or terminable. You've told me it's treatable. Doesn't sound like you think it's terminal. It sounds like you think it's a treatable. Well, I think it's a tre it's it's treatable in the sense that there are some small parts of it that are that are reasonable, but uh, it, it's treatable, but it's a massive, major surgical procedure. Let us now try another medical practice, Doctor Atlas. Let's make you an obstetrician, a pediatrician, and as you watch the child forming in the Senate, the child developing, what are you looking for? As certain guideposts, certain milestones musts for you for the Senate to, to pass with you? What what does the Senate have to do in its bill to get your approval? Well, I, I really think they have to attack the uh, massive burden of over-regulation. And, and that really uh, has to include things like making sure that we have limited mandate, higher deductible, uh, catastrophic coverage available as an option for the American people. We can't sit there and think that the government should be, should be able to dictate this bloated, overly comprehensive health insurance that necessarily, by definition, is very expensive and is, is not going to be opted for by people who are really not high risk for disease. And again, you're just going to repeat the same problems that, that created the current uh, 
really implosion of the Affordable Care Act. The other, the other parts of that uh, really are to not be in the political game. I'm a, I fear that they, that they are so concerned with the politics of it, but you can't be in the political game that you need to match or be competitive with Obamacare subsidies and have the end game be the number of people that are insured because every change to Obamacare by this CBO will clearly predict a decrease in the number of people with insurance. And so the Republicans have to understand, they have to educate the American people on why these reforms that they're proposing are better for right. people as they are, and I'm 100% certain they are, but the education and the kind of media exposure seems to be dominated by people who want to preserve Obamacare. Right. So I think you've struck on something very important here. First of all, the senators are going to have to put their heads down and go about their business and not pay attention to what's going on in the media. It's the old joke, Scott, about how the end of the world is covered by the press and the Wall Street Journal's reports, end of the world, markets down sharply in early trading. New York Times, end of the world, details on page D7. And the Washington Post, end of the world, women and minorities seen hurt the most. And... <laughs> Every day they do Obamacare, it's going to be a screaming headline about who loses coverage, what benefit gets taken away, and they have to ignore that. But I think you've hit the key here. The Republicans have to step up their game on messaging, and that's explaining what is wrong with Obamacare. It's, it's a tricky thing because in some respects you're talking about what happens when the Titanic strikes the iceberg. But the Titanic, in a lot of people's minds, hasn't hit the iceberg. They haven't seen it yet. The stern is not up out of the water right now. So you're trying to tell the public this thing is doomed, and they don't quite get that. In fact, we look at polls on Obamacare. Obamacare actually polls rather well right now. It's polled, actually, it polls better with Barack Obama out of office, of all things, if you will. But the Republicans have to step up their messaging. Interesting thing that happened, Scott, while you were back east, we had big news out here in California. And that was the California equivalent of the Congressional Budget Office, which is a state legislative, uh, state, uh, legislative analyst office. They came out with a report on a proposal for universal single-payer health care coverage in California. You're nodding your head. They scored it. They put a number on it. The number, Scott, $400 billion a year to make this happen in California. A state with about 40 million people. My math is rusty, but I think it's about $10,000 a person, which sounds on the cheap side for health care, if you ask me. So... If it's going to be $400 million, who, know where it, who knows where it actually ends up? The high-speed rail out here is supposed to be $40 million. It's now at about $80 million, I think, so $80 billion, excuse me. Why on God's worth, Scott, would California want to go to single-payer universal health care coverage? Well, I mean, this is, a, this is one of my favorite subjects, but it's also the most frustrating because the, the dialogue about single-payer health care ignores all historical fact and all data about access and quality of care. And in fact, we have uh, systems out there in other countries that we can look at and look at the data, and, and I have done so uh, multiple times, and in fact wrote a whole book on the comparison called In Excellent Health, Setting the Record Straight on America's Healthcare. And what we find when you actually look at the facts are that the single-payer systems have worse outcomes for every serious chronic disease than the U.S. system pre-Obamacare, worse outcomes for cancer, worse access for care for chronic diseases, worse access for drugs and specialist appointments. And, I mean, just some statistics. The NHS in England, almost 20% of people who have the diagnosis of cancer need urgent treatment, quote-unquote. It's actually 19% of those people 
wait more than two months to get treatment. That's unheard of in the United States. In fact, that never occurs, right. and no one would tolerate that. Another quick stat on England, 18%, almost one in five people with a brain problem that needs neurosurgery, 18% of those people wait more than four months after the diagnosis, four months later to see the neurosurgeon. Unacceptable. The waiting lists have exploded in these countries. In fact, the systems are so bad that the countries in Western Europe with these systems not only can't meet the demand for patients, so what they do is they take tax dollars that were collected to pay for their single-payer systems, and they pay private practice doctors mm -hmm. with that money. They go to the private system, and in some cases, they go to the private system in other countries right. with their federal tax dollars. I mean, it's really uh, the hidden truth about, about single-payer systems. Even places like Sweden, the mother of all welfare countries, has been privatizing as their solution to their failing healthcare system. Mm -hmm. So what, what you need to do is to really look at the facts. And unfortunately, Senator Sanders ran on uh, the idea that, well, you know, it's unconscionable. The U.S. is the single country in the world that doesn't guarantee health care, which is uh, just so wrong on so many levels, uh, one of which is that saying someone has insurance is not synonymous with saying they have access to doctors and, and medical care. It's got a $400 billion a year health care plan for California. That is more than double what the entire state budget of California is at present. The budgets on the table in Sacramento is $183.5 billion. So you're going to have to come up with $200 billion at least in new fees and taxes. Where are you going to find that? Yeah, but I think it's even more than the money. And my yeah. point is this. It's not about the cost of single payer to me. The systems are disasters for quality and access of care. Why in the world you would even propose such a thing is simply... Uh, maintaining this naive belief about single-payer health care as if it's so-called fair mm -hmm. rather than understanding the realities that more people die and, very, uh, and have much worse outcomes from diseases in those systems than our system. It's not something to, to aspire to. A final question I want you to answer on, on Obamacare front. Three years ago in the Wall Street Journal, you wrote a column with the headline, Where Obamacare is Going. And here's what you wrote. I want you to answer this question, Scott. The liberal attraction to making government the sole source of health care insurance has not abated, even as the deficiencies in Obamacare, a halfway move toward the single-payer model, have become increasingly evident. The question is whether growing signs of single-payer trouble overseas will be enough to discourage this country's flirtation with socialized medicine. Here's the question, Scott. What will it take back here at home to discourage the left's flirtation with single-payer health care? I think you hit on it earlier, which is, the American people have to understand the difference. I'm still naive enough to believe, or hopeful enough. But but that, it was tried in Vermont? Correct. Disaster. Failed. Disaster. Yes. So are we going to have to just try it in a state like California, which has an important economy, and just destroy California to prove, aha, this doesn't work? Or how do you drive this home to the left? Well, I, I think the, 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 the left, may uh, certainly in, in Congress, uh, may never accept that. But what, what we need to do, I generally believe people are responsive in Congress to what American voters want. And that's why I say that the, the burden is on the Republicans or the conservatives or the health care experts to, to make that a message, the facts, understood. When I speak uh, at meetings and go through the actual facts about single-payer systems compared to our system, 
uh, you'd, you'd, you'd be surprised how many people who came in with preconceived notions say, mm-hmm. you know, that's the first I've heard of that. And uh, people can be con- convinced and people can learn, but you have to present them the facts. And there, believe me, there is a compelling case against single-payer health care. Now, you wear a lot of hats here at the Hoover Institution, and uh, this summer we are doing something which has been a passion project of yours for some time. We are holding a boot camp. Explain to our listeners what the boot camp is. The boot camp is the first uh, in what we hope to be an annual, at least, event, which is a summer policy boot camp for uh, juniors and seniors in college and uh, recent graduates of college. The the younger people, uh, I think... Are, are in a different world nowadays on university campuses, as we know. But the goal of our, our summer policy boot camp, which is a one-week residential program, uh, is to take college students and help them understand that policy is actually based on data and, and uh, kind of facilitate their critical thinking on issues rather than Uh, hold on to some knee-jerk kind of emotional reaction. Policy that is good must be based on fact, and uh, regardless of your opinion. So we have some of the top scholars uh, at Hoover. In fact, we had so many people who wanted to be involved that we we really can't accommodate all the people at Hoover that want to be involved in this program. And we had uh, hundreds of applicants from all over the country, some of the top college students in the U.S., uh, and we have accepted them, and we got almost 100% yield on the people that we accepted. So it will be a, a one-week-long program. We'll cover 10 general policy topics, mm-hmm. each topic a half a day. It'll be highly interactive. Uh, and we hope to have, uh, and I think we will have, uh, lively discussions in each of these areas. Okay. So we're assuming this has become an annual tradition at Hoover. We hope it will. I, I think the all indications are that it will be annual at Hoover, and it's not clear. We're still in the discussion of how to kind of uh, spread that around to uh, have a bigger audience, but we'll see. It's possible that we'll do something in, in, in other locations at different times of the year. So if you're a college student listening to this podcast, this interests you, when should you think about applying to the Hoover Institution to do this? So uh, we, this is a summer program because we realize students are in session during the year and we're try, we try to juggle the date and it's very difficult to pick one where it wouldn't interfere with uh, internships or other uh, summer uh, activities of students. But this year it was in August. Uh, we put out on the website uh, the application which I think had a deadline of something like March for application. And so uh, keep your uh, eyes and ears open and kind of check out Hoover's website and uh, we'll probably put it up again uh, in the spring. It'll be a spring deadline for the right. summer or a so late, the, late so winter. So beginning of 2018, spring. start checking with Hoover and seeing, see if this Absolutely. is going to happen. Absolutely. And we're going to, we will try to have some of these things uh, also accessible online. I think this is a great concept uh, for all we talk about what's going on on campuses, for all we talk about where the next generation of leadership is coming from, how to get kids involved in public policy. This just sounds like a tremendous idea, Scott. Great job getting that set up. We're looking forward to it. Thank you. Dr. Scott Atlas, I appreciated the talk today. This is great. All right. Great being here. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th president of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And tell your friends about us. We want to keep this growing. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. 
hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows, including, yes, Dr. Scott Atlas, straight to your inbox every business day. You can also find the Hoover Institution on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at HooverINST. And Scott Atlas, you're smart enough not to be on Twitter, right? I try to avoid it. Very good. Uh, for the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Next up will be a look at speech writing at the Trump White House. We'll have somebody very special in-house to talk about this. Hint, Ronald Reagan, Berlin Wall, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Until then, take care. As always, thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.